Well, thank you, Anne, for reading, and uh, let me have my welcome to St. John's this morning, especially to uh, visitors attending the baptism of William. Uh, he's certainly a lively little young man. I, I assume he, he's, not, he's a bit less lively at home. I hope he's a bit less lively at home. It's, uh, it sounds like a challenge. Good luck with that. Um, so I'm very pleased that you could, you could all join us this morning. Uh, before we turn to look at the Bible, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Teach us from it today, we pray. Help us to learn how to trust you more. Help us also to trust in the Lord Jesus, our coming King, more and more. Change us into the people you want us to be for your glory, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have a question for everybody. What is that? Any ideas? What is that? Not him, no. <laughs> Karen? Shout out. Cardiograph. Oh, my goodness. Posh, posh words. Anybody know the initials? There's another one there. ECG, that's right. What's it stand for? Electro, these doctors, you, you can't get away from them, can you? Electrocardiogram, that's right. I didn't even need to give you the clue. There's the clue. There's a nice big heart with the, with the electrocardiogram behind. Yeah, it's ECG electrocardiogram. Well done. Uh, as I, I'm speaking, preach, preaching to the choir here, but anyway, uh, it's used by doctors to assess the condition of a patient's heart, and many heart problems can be diagnosed by looking at a patient's ECG. Did you know that there is a condition that's called stiff heart syndrome? Uh, posh term, medical terminology, sorry about my pronunciation, it's cardiac amyloidosis. Did you know that? There we go. In that condition, what happens is that hard deposits are laid down in the heart muscle and they make it stiff so it doesn't pump properly anymore. Then starts to have problems and they often lead to major heart problems. Did you know also that the Bible mentions our hearts and also mentions hard-heartedness? I don't think it's into cardiac amyloidosis, but I think it's a different kind of hard-heartedness, isn't it? I didn't count all of the instances. But there are about 280 references in my great big huge Bible with all the references in the back to hearts. Uh, so the heart is actually a major topic in the Bible. And typically these references are about inner desires and intentions. That is what we really value and go after. It's not the muscle that's pumping blood around our systems. It's what we're really thinking and what we go after. What we trust. It's a major theme, actually, in this section of Isaiah. Uh, it runs right from chapter 7 of Isaiah right through to chapter 39. So fully 33 chapters of Isaiah, about half the entire book, are about trust and trusting in God. Isaiah urges the people to trust God. It's there in our passage today. If you take a look at verses 3 and 4, the bottom of page 111 in your Bibles, and on, on into the next page, it says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Here, Isaiah is encouraging those of us with feeble hands, knees that give way, and fearful hearts. I think even the younger members amongst us will say that at some point or another, 
This is all of us, isn't it? Everyone from time to time has a fearful heart, something that's on your mind, something that gives you great concern. Isaiah is encouraging us to be strong, not to be afraid, and to rely on God. And what more does he say? He says that God will come with vengeance. He's going to come with divine retribution, and he's going to come to save us. In this lovely season of Advent, as we look forward to Christmas, isn't it great to be reminded that God will come? He's going to deal decisively with our enemies, and he's going to rescue us. God will save us. So Isaiah is encouraging us to live our lives in the light of this truth. God is going to come and deal with our enemies. He's definitely going to come and save us. He's going to take decisive action when he comes. Look at the contrasts in the passage that underline this. This passage is absolutely full of contrasts where barren places become fertile. For instance, the wilderness becomes a place where there are flowers bursting into bloom. The wilderness again turns into a place where water gushes forth. The desert is contrasted with places where there are streams, burning sands against pools, thirsty ground becomes bubbling springs, and then also where the jackal lay down becomes a place of lush vegetation with grass and reeds and papyrus. The jackal's haunt here represents those places of spiritual defilement and uncleanness. And they turn into places of spiritual blessing where there's grass and reeds and papyrus. Later on the passage, Isaiah tells us of the highway, the path, which is the way to move forward and to become holy. The clue is in the name, the way of holiness. And remember that holy means set apart for God, kept separate for him. Along that way, there won't be any fools, nothing and no one who is unclean, no dangerous animals, just the redeemed, that is, those who've been bought back, those for whom the price has been paid. And notice that it's the ransomed of the Lord. It's those for whom God himself has paid the price to buy them back. These are the people that the Lord God himself has rescued. So Isaiah concludes with the promise that those on this way of holiness will enter Zion, that is, God's holy city, and they'll enter Zion with singing, They'll be crowned with everlasting joy. All those royal privileges will be theirs. They'll experience surpassing joy and gladness. And sorrow and sighing will just not be absent. They'll have fled away. They'll be pushed away, put to flight. What a lovely picture of redemption, joy, gladness, and peace. Isn't that what all of us want? Imagine something unspeakably nice enjoyable, pleasant, and then double it. More than anything we could reasonably hope for. Imagine not being able to think of anything sad or distressing. They'll all be driven away. Bring it on. That's what I say, bring it on. Isn't that fantastic? But all of that begs two questions. When? And secondly, how? When will our God come with divine retribution? When is he going to come with vengeance against our enemies to save us? Well, the passage in Isaiah has got answers to that. We look on to verses 5 and 6. Isaiah says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, 
and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So there it is. When we see the eyes of the blind being opened, when we see the ears of the deaf being unstopped, when the lame leap, leap like a deer, and when the mute shout for joy, that's it. But when's that? Well, let's take a look at when it actually happened. If you've got a Bible, it'd be helpful to turn to Mark chapter 7 and verse 31. I'll have a quick flick through Mark chapter 7. It's on page 1565 if you've got a Bible. Don't worry if you, if you don't, I can, I'll read it. So Mark chapter 7 verse 31 goes like this. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see that? Deaf hear, mute speak. Okay. And if we just move on a little bit further, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Let me just read that. Then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Then he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees wandering around, walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So two passages from Mark's gospel. Note how in this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, Mark underlines the way that Jesus deliberately fulfills Isaiah's prophecies. The deaf man can't hear, and because he can't hear well, he doesn't know what sounds to make. He can hardly speak. People beg Jesus to heal him. Jesus takes him aside, shows him that he's going to take care of his ears and his tongue, and then he looks up to heaven and speaks that command, Ephatha, be opened. Result, immediate healing. Deaf man's ears are opened, tongue loosened, he begins to speak plainly. And the reaction of the onlookers? They were under no illusions as to what had just happened. They tell everyone about it, and they notice their words. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Next up is the blind man in Bethsaida. Again, people beg Jesus, please come and heal him. So he takes him somewhere quieter and in two stages heals him from blindness. Do come and see me afterwards in the, in the center and talk about it if you want to know why he used two stages at that point. So that begs, well, that gives us the answer to that question, doesn't it? When, when is the time 
that God will come with vengeance against our enemies, with divine retribution, and come to save us. Jesus was the one who announced that time. God has come. That's Jesus, his Messiah or Christ, his anointed king to defeat our enemies and to rescue us. So that's the when. So how? How does he actually deal with that? How are we rescued or redeemed so that we can walk on that way of holiness? How can we do it? The Apostle Paul laid this out fair and square in his first letter to the Corinthian Christians. He says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates the power of God. To us who are being saved, who are seeking to walk on this way of holiness that Isaiah mentions, Jesus' death on the cross is how the prophecy in Isaiah is fulfilled. Faith in Jesus, repenting of our sins, as we spoke about earlier in the service, and trusting Jesus to rescue us, these are the solutions. But let me touch on one more very sensible question, which is begged by all of this, and it's this. Jesus' death on the cross took place about 2,000 years ago. Why are there still so many people who haven't acknowledged Jesus as Lord and haven't accepted his offer of rescue? The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is clear. The teaching of the Bible is clear. So what's everybody waiting for? Why will they not trust Jesus and follow him? Well, the answer is given to us by Paul, in, again in his first letter to the Corinthians. You see, the reality is that people's hearts are hard. They were hard then, and 2,000 years later, they're hard today. What are they waiting for? Jews demand signs, says Paul. They're looking through the prophecies in the Bible and waiting for the fulfillment. So Jesus comes and he fulfills these prophecies. And then? Well, it wasn't what we were expecting. Fulfillment wasn't what we were expecting. It doesn't fit, they argue. It's not in character. It's not what we were expecting. So they stumble. Jesus has made them stumble in that way. And what about the Greeks? The Greeks, that's shorthand for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Uh, they look for wisdom. They're looking for clever solutions, smart answers, neat explanations is what we're after. Someone hanging dead on a cross does not fit. I don't know about you, but how many times do you experience that faint amusement or maybe even open incredulity from people when we mention, or maybe it comes out, that we believe in Jesus really did die on the cross? He was buried, 
and that three days later he rose again. Maybe people find it quaint, naive, sweet, faintly amusing that grown men and women should believe such a simple story. It's okay for kids in Sunday school, maybe, but surely without a date. It's superseded by modern science, modern thinking, philosophy, and so out of touch with all the other religions of the world, don't you know? Foolishness, surely. This attitude on the part of many explains why they won't respond to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. They won't put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Their hearts are hard. They just think it's all foolishness. So where do we go from here? Let me just close by offering two ways forward. Firstly, thank the, the Lord God fervently that you have heard, received, and believed the good news that Jesus died for your salvation, for your rescue. Time was, each one of us was one of those hard-hearted people with a spiritual heart problem. But now we know better. It's all God's activity through his Holy Spirit. None of us is any smarter or more perceptive than others. The fact is that our hard hearts have been softened by God's Holy Spirit. And more than that, we've actually undergone a spiritual heart transplant. That old heart of stone has been cut out, and instead we've been given a new heart of flesh. So we need to thank God very much for rescuing each one of us. Second thing to think about is we need to pray for God to soften other people's hearts so that they can hear and receive and believe the good news about Jesus. Our persuasive arguments and our words will count for nothing. It will all fall on deaf ears as people who've hard hearts just dismiss the gospel as foolishness. It is urgent that we beg Jesus to deal with the hearts of everyone who refuses to believe. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us about the great rescue that you offer everyone through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. For any here who have yet to respond to this good news, I pray that today you will soften their hearts and call them to new life in you. Those of us who have believed and are walking in the way of holiness, for them I ask that, that you will make us faithful in prayer for others. We know that you're the only one who can soften hard hearts. Do this more and more in our nation and across the world we pray for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.